Tuesday, July 23rd, 2003. By the time you're listening to this episode, that will have been 18 years ago for me, which, uh, which is kind of insane and giving me a bit of an existential crisis. Um, on top of the one that I constantly have already. But anyway, if you're wondering how I remember such a very specific date, it's, well, one, because it's uh, it's one of my fondest memories. It was a time, um, one of the few times that I got to visit the North Woods with my grandmother, who passed away this past January. And so, of course, this, this story in particular is um, especially important to me, even more so now. But the reason that I know the date isn't isn't because I have some kind of like wizard brain. It's because of luck. See, there's this place called Heston's Lodge. My family used to go there every so often growing up. It's it's on the Gunflint Lake in northern Minnesota, right at the end of, well, the Gunflint Trail. And um, this particular year, 18 years ago, was the first time that I saw a bear in the wild. So the date, how do I know the date? Well, it's because I went back to that very same place with my family just last year. And when we were there, we found some visitor journals and my wife was going through them and she happened to find my visitor entry from Wednesday, July 24th, 2003, that I wrote probably about 10 minutes before we had to leave the cabin. And so rather than me try to tell you the story, I'm going to tell you the story from the day after, from my perspective as a, a what, 11 year old kid? Here it goes. Last night, July 23rd, we heard a crash. My grandma and I saw a bear out on the porch. I'm 11 years old. I couldn't see the bear at first. We closed the screen door as fast as we could. We called my mom over as fast as we could. She didn't believe it until she saw the looks in our faces. She grabbed the light and shined it towards the bridge, and there was a black bear sitting on the bridge. My dad and brother were in the shower. I'll have to explain that one in a second here. When it happened, so we started screaming in excitement. My dad and my brother got out of the shower to see what was going on, and we told them what had happened. I grabbed the video camera, Me and my dad and my mom jumped in the car and drove around trying to find it. We came back 10 minutes later and it hadn't come back. My mom walked to the bridge and back because she wanted to see if the bear was still there. My my dad shined a light at the bear. And oops, out of time. The story will be finished next year. Well, there, there wasn't a next time until this last time, I suppose. Um, All of that is something that I would not advise in the absolute slightest when interacting with the bear. And um, I just wanna give you a few more details about exactly what happened. So my grandmother, she was a a big fisherman, like big, it was was everything to her. And um, she had brought her poles up and we had done some fishing and caught some Northern and, and some bass and we were having a a fish fry and um we weren't super smart about the garbage we put most of the garbage just in a big you know like those big paper yard waste bags on the porch and we heard some rustling my mom was off doing something 
my dad was helping my brother take a shower, who was really, really little at the time. And um, so it was just my grandma and I, and, and we started hearing this rustling on the porch and she says, <laughs> she says, oh, that's so nice. They come and pick up the garbage for you around here. And I was like, grandma, no, they, no, they don't. And so we opened the door and there I am face to face with a, a black bear, which at the time felt huge. Looking back, there's no way it was that big. But um, as it as it goes, she she pulls me in by the back of the shirt, slams the door. She starts screaming. My mom, in her um, eager photographerness, bolts out with her camera and goes out the front door to try to get a picture. Again, would not advise any of this. Horrible, horrible ideas. Um, that's kind of how it went. We ended up actually sitting in the car. Um, waiting to see if the bear would come back by so we could get a closer look. Again, I do not advise any of this. So please, 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 please don't do that. What I will say is it's clearly a memory that's stuck with me for the last 18 years um, and definitely one that um, I think nurtured my love for nature, nurtured my my passion for conservation. And um, yeah. If you didn't gather by the sharing of that story, nor by the episode title, which I'm assuming that you saw before you clicked on this one or hit play, this episode is all about bears. Bears, Beats, Battlestar Galactica, all of it. And our guest for today is Brogan Holcomb. Brogan is a master's student working in the Wildlife, Habitat, and Population Analysis Lab at Virginia Tech. She's also the one behind those hashtag Sunday scientist shout outs on Twitter. She does those every week for scientists or STEM activists from underrepresented groups. You can follow Brogan at Brogan underscore Holcomb or look up her other hashtag bears eye view for some pretty cool bear videos. Brogan is interested in behavioral ecology and how animals utilize the landscape while potentially interacting with humans. Current research of hers involves bear behavior, foraging, and hibernation ecology, and uh, behavior and foraging ecology. A research project that we talked to about a little bit with her involving video collars placed on GPS collars of wild bears in the central Appalachians. We cover a lot in today's episode, including um, the very, very important uh, little tidbit that not all black bears are actually black, fun fact. Um, black bear range in North America how many bear species there are in total, how large can black bears get, what is their diet, their behavior, what's up with hibernation, cubs, how many, how long do they stay with mom, all that good stuff, everyone wants to know that stuff. Interactions with people, because that's the one that people tend to care about, is how do bears affect me, and mitigating issues with human-wildlife interactions, and how we can foster coexistence with bears. So now that I have uh, gone on at some length for, for a while, much to the chagrin of a, a recent reviewer of the podcast, who shall remain nameless at the moment. Um, shout out, though. What's up, my guy? Uh, anyway, <laughs> we are going to continue on with the show. So without further ado, let's learn all about bears with Brogan Holcomb. Hey everybody, this is Devin Boker, your host, and you are listening to The Wildlife. 
a show about the natural world and how to protect it. A part of the Open Outdoors Project. It's a nonprofit initiative inspiring hope of a green and just future through open access to the outdoors. So the, the funny thing about black bears is they're not all really black. I, I feel like I've seen a, a fair amount of black bears that are almost more cinnamon in color. Um, mm-hmm. Is is that is that a pretty common thing or is that range specific or? It's kind of range specific. So east of the Mississippi, it's mostly um, black, all black. There's occasionally variations, but that's more of a Midwest, West Coast and kind of Canada. There's mm-hmm. a lot of it, or not a lot. There's six or seven variations from black to red to the blonde, which is kind of whitish, to blue gray, and the, oh. then the seven ones that you said before. I'd love to see some of those. Yeah, sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. Huh. I've um, sort of on the on the, and this is kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, but on the um, um, interactions with people, sort of a thing. Um, and, and this comes up because a listener messaged me this like 20 minutes ago <laughs> about, you know, if, if you do come across a bear on a trail, um, what your concern level is. And, and, and in part because they had heard that black bears are the only bears that will eat their prey while it's still alive. And so they were like, do I need to be more concerned about coming across a black bear as opposed to other bears? And how should I handle that? I'm not sure about the eating part, but I do know (laughs) black bears tend to, I mean, most animals don't want confrontation. It takes more energy to fight than it does to flee. Mm -hmm. So usually if a black bear even hears something that it's not sure about, it'll usually probably just walk away, especially if you're out West where there's grizzlies and they're not the top predator. Sure. So if you see one on a trail, honestly, just letting it walk on its way, it will normally just leave you alone and keep going because again, it doesn't want confrontation. It may smell food that you're carrying, but a lot of times they're afraid of people, so they don't really want to go towards people. It's that problem when people start feeding them and they get habituated that they're going to try to walk up to people, and that's when they can get scared or the person gets scared, and then they have that, um, I mean, animals do have that prey drive, so if you start Mm -hmm. to run, you think you're prey, so just slowly backing away, letting the bear go on their way is usually the best option if you come off on one. Now, if you've been a uh, moderate to longtime listener of the show, you might remember where there was a little stint there where we were sharing some, uh, I don't really know how else to put it other than um, false tips around wildlife. One of those, my personal favorite, had to do with bears, which was if you come across a bear on a trail, what should you do? Well, you point in the other direction and you say, ah, a human, which will confuse the bear, making it think that it is indeed the human and you are somehow the bear. Yeah. I have to say in, in my personal experience, I mean, I've, I've now at this point come across a fair amount of black bears, like uh, up in the boundary waters or just hiking or whatever. And, um, not, I'd say, you know, every single time, you know, they, they run away fairly quickly and I, without me even really doing anything, they just kind of were like, Oh, Mm -hmm. someone's there. And they turn around and walk away. Um, yeah, yeah, and mothers one, have a, yeah, they, it's not 100% sure how they do it, but they have a certain call that they're supposed to do towards their cubs. It tells a, them their cub to go up a tree huh. and they'll go investigate whatever the noise is. So a lot of times if they hear you coming, they'll try to get their cub to a safe place. Cause usually if it's a male or something, it may yeah. have an issue with the cubs being there. So it'll tell the cub to go kind of hide. It'll go investigate and run away and come back and get the cubs later when it's oh. safe. Interesting. What is what is their um their range in North America? Lately in Minnesota, I feel like the last few years there's been more talk about them venturing more into the cities, and and the DNR ends up usually transporting them back north somewhere, and like dropping them off. Um, 
and I and so to me it's like okay well clearly they're not everywhere in Minnesota but I hear about them in other southern states mm-hmm. so I'm, yeah curious yeah so they're all all over North America and into Canada as well and um the they're kind of spread depending on their home ranges and resource availability. Mm-hmm. So females have the smaller home ranges and they don't tend to cover as much land. Um, but it, a lot of it does depend on the resources that are available. Um, so if they're in the forest that's near in a forest area near a city and they're not finding enough food in the forested area, they could venture into the cities. Um, mm-hmm. But again, that's really dependent on their kind of fear of humans too, because if they see a highway that may scare them a lot, or if they're really used to it and grew up around it, then it may not. So while they can be found all over, I think they are slowly going into cities, but I'm not sure how much that will persist because sure. people can see a coyote and think it's a dog in a city, yeah. but a bear is very <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anybody's going to, what was that a couple of years ago where somebody saw a serval, like somebody's pet serval and thought it was a cheetah? and like freaked out about it it's like it's like oh come on but yeah black bear is kind of a unmistakable thing (laughs) how how many species are there in north america is it is it just a grizzly polar and black bear yeah so there's just three in north america but in the world around the world there's eight different species um and then there's subspecies of each a bunch of them Mm. okay okay um how large do the black bears get um, they can, there's a good variety of the range. The females can get between like 90, 100 to 250 when they're on the bigger side and males between 130-ish to about 500 pounds. Again, depending on resources wow. and um, the weather probably plays a factor in there on how much fat they build up and what time of the year you're weighing them too. Because if they're going into hibernation, they're going to weigh more mm-hmm. than th- when they come out of hibernation. But the biggest one that they've ever seen, which I just learned this the other day, the biggest black male ever caught was in North Carolina, and it was 880 pounds. Oh, my Whoa. gosh. <laughs> and the largest female was actually from northern Minnesota, and that one was 520 pounds. Oh, wow. I'm still, I'm still shocked about the 880. That's, that's, that's pretty big. That's crazy. Um, so I, I understand, um, I mean, they're carnivores, but they're omnivorous. I mean, they have a... A range in their diet which kind of a side note they've been realizing that more about wolves lately too the voyager wolf project has been uncovering some pretty interesting stuff about how many berries they eat in the summer and things um oh. but i'm kind of curious is like that omnivorous characteristic is that more dependent on just what's available like an opportunistic kind of thing or you know what, what does their diet look like and, and change like um, that's actually one thing we're trying to answer more about with mm. the video callers because we get a random sample of their behavior. We can see what they're eating, yeah. um, but they are omnivores. So they do a lot of what is known is based on harvest analysis. So they will open the stomach when they harvest the animal and see what mm-hmm. is in there or scat analysis. But a lot of the vegetation gets digested. So you're not going to be able to tell all of everything that they're eating unless yeah. they see other things left. So they're, we're hoping with, this video analysis, because I've been cataloging what they're interacting with versus what they're actually eating. Sure. So we're hoping to see if that matches to what the other things are telling. Um, but right now we know that they eat in the springtime, right when they come out of hibernation, a lot of grass and insects and um, just really any little thing that they can find that's already started to bloom. Hmm. And then in the summer and fall when they're breeding and getting ready for hibernation, they'll eat acorns and berries and uh, all different types of leaves and when they can, they'll probably eat meat too, but it's also, they're not sure if they're hunting as much 
as some people think they do or if okay. they scam a lot more. Yeah, I've kind of always wondered that if it was more of a, uh, you know, things that they, they stumble upon or if they're actively hunting. Because, I mean, I don't know how fast they can get. They can run about 30 miles an hour, but that it's at a sprint. Wow. I don't know how long they can hold that. Okay. So more of like a charging kind of thing, not a sustained like marathon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we haven't seen in the videos that I've done them actually hunting. We've seen them eating meat, but we aren't, they aren't actually hunting it. Mm -hmm. So we're not sure if they're just happening upon like a fawn that might have been stillborn or something like that. Yeah. Or if something else killed it and they scared it off. Or we're not sure how they're getting it, but we're hoping because we have accelerometers also on these collars. If we can try to narrow that down with some captive bear videos versus um the stuff we're getting from the camera cars. oh neat in terms of um behavior social behavior you know if they're more isolated or if they do ever get into groups um what, what does that look like with black bears yeah one thing that i always think is interesting when people say that they think the bear in like a neighborhood or something is gonna go after them is when they stand up on their hind legs but a lot of people i feel like they forget because they think of a big scary bear as being tall is that bears are really short and when they hear something they can't see it usually so when they when they're standing up on their hind legs it's actually a curious thing and they want to see what's making the noise like if a bear is going to charge at you they're going to be making all kinds of noise and be stomping their feet and they're going to be ready to charge you very stiff posture they're not going to be standing up on their hind legs because they can't run on two legs so it's not a very good defensive one um but they also they usually tend to keep to themselves like in the videos, we rarely see them interacting with other bears. Occasionally, they'll pass one and they'll be bad at each other. Or if it's one that they may be about to um, do courtship with, they'll spend like a week or so with it, but they don't really spend that much time with other bears. Unless it's their cubs, and that's like the one that they spend most of the time with. Sure. I feel like on the on the subject of being on the hind feet, I feel like I've heard more frequently lately, um, and I'm blanking on the name of the one that people were calling it, but bears that like there was a video a couple years ago of a bear that was just walking around a neighborhood on its hind feet yeah they can walk a little bit on their hind feet. looking in trash cans and things yeah yeah they can walk a little bit on their hind feet but i mean if they're going to charge you they need all four legs like yeah effectively do, but they will <laughs> use their height on their hind legs to reach things like bird feeders which mm -hmm. actually have a lot um they try to build up their fat reserves and bird feeders are mostly fat like suets are mostly fat so that's one reason mm -hmm. that they always destroy those bird feeders to get the suets is because it's just such a high fat content that it's like a huge treat for them to get that kind of thing. So, so what you're saying is, is if you're ever being uh, charged down by a bear on two feet, it's probably just somebody in a mascot. Yeah, costume. probably. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Might need to use that in the future. <laughs> Who knows? This was something that I couldn't really resist like giving further explanation and further further time to the whole the whole walking bear story the the sightings of bears on two feet so summer of 2014 in oak ridge new jersey there was a series of sightings including a, a viral youtube video of a bear that was walking around on two feet and then opening up trash can lids and looking inside and closing them and moving on to the next house the townspeople eventually named him petals like bipedal petal like, there was such a craze about this bear. He he showed up on Good Morning America. Not the bear himself, videos of the bear, but, like, they were talking about him everywhere. But as it turns out, it's actually kind of a sad story. So his front paws, the reason he was walking on his two back feet, were kind of messed up. One hand was pretty much missing. The other one was severely mangled. 
um, presumably from, from different types of traps, foothold traps. Anyway, a group of people figured that out pretty quick, and they started a Save Petals campaign that earned over 400,000 signatures to try and have them transported to a private sanctuary called the Wildlife Orphanage. As the story goes, basically, the state said no. And their reasoning for it wasn't anything bad. It was that here is a bear surviving. He's clearly figuring it out. He's clearly surviving. He's adapting. Let the bear stay in the wild. Why pull him out of the wild if he's clearly doing okay? There was some back and forth on this for quite some time. And eventually, what ended up happening is a hunter uh, ended up shooting petals. And unfortunately, he died. Um, hibernation is something that's always really intrigued me about bears. And I'm, I'm curious, do they, do they genuinely sleep the entire time like without eating and... How? Um, it depends on a couple different things. So, if the if it does get cold enough for them to go into full hibernation, they will they won't eat or sleep. They recycle um, all the nutrients in their bodies over and over again until they don't have any more, and that's when they wake up. That's why they have to build up that fat reserve. Huh. Um, and okay. then, but if it's a mild winter, then they may not go into full hibernation. So when a warm day comes, they may wake up and go try to find some food or and find it either a new spot to den or it may go back to their same other den. Um, but they don't eat, they don't drink, they do urinate and, or they don't urinate or defecate either while they're in the den, um, which is probably good in the long run because it would smell really bad. But they do when they, <laughs> they give birth, I think that we aren't entirely sure, but they may just wake up to give birth and then they go back to sleep and the cubs kind of just self feed because it's just off of um, the mother's yeah. milk. So it's not too much with it, but they usually go in between October in January, depending on the weather, the uh, resources available, because if they get enough fat built, built up, they'll go to, they'll go into hibernation earlier than if it's a very sure. resource limited or the bad mast year, and they may have to try and find more food wherever they can and before they go into hibernation. Is it temperature dependent at all? Oh, it's definitely de temperature dependent because if it's still okay. warm enough, there's still going to be things up to eat. So, oh sure, yeah sure, so they sure. don't really feel the need to go in because it's that lack of resources which can also send them into hibernation if they have enough fat reserves um when they when they have cubs uh about how many do they typically have at a time and how long do they stay with the mother um so they typically have two to three that's the average between um and it's every other winter so the cubs will stay with the mom for a year and a half so the mother will raise them through their first year and then the cub yearling cubs will go into hibernation with the mother for the that next season and then when they emerge and they're about a year and a half old at that point um when the mother starts mm -hmm. to pursue uh, another male to mate then that's usually when they'll split and the cubs will go off on their own and try to make their new home ranges and find food sources and stuff like that um well yeah that was part of the question right yeah I feel like, you know, one of the biggest ways that bears get attention is um, in their interactions with people, you know, getting into trash cans or, you know, being at a resort or, or a camping resort and people seeing them and, you know, they frequently get the uh, the nuisance title and things. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that in terms of you know, how that happens. You know, what are what are the factors that kind of lead into that and how does that affect bears and their behavior and their um Populations. Yeah, so that's one of the big problems people tend to have, like bear interactions, is it's usually a residential bear issue. 
um, because they are mm -hmm. so adaptable and they learn really quickly. So they learn if someone doesn't secure a trash can, they can knock it over and get a really good free meal. Um, mm -hmm. So people try, you can do deterrents such as um, if you see the bear, you can bang loud pots and pans and they don't like that kind of noise. So they'll probably try to avoid that area again or securing your trash mm -hmm. cans, getting a bear resistant trash can that also helps with it. But a lot of times people don't even think about bird feeders until they're there destroying the bird feeders or people that have outdoor <laughs> pets and leave the food out. That's just a free meal, one for all wildlife that's out there. Raccoons will walk up and eat it, other things. Um, mm -hmm. And then one that people never really think of is grills, where you, if you don't empty your grease trap, they'll go oh, the grease yeah. trap a lot of times. Um, but yeah. a lot of times it's more educating people on how they can do these small little things to prevent a bear from coming to the area. Um, because it's also not very good for the bear's health to eat fast food and dog food and things like that. They need to yeah. be getting their normal diets that they would find in the wild. So any time of year, a bear can really come out of hibernation or even in the middle of the summer. Like my parents' house right now, they have a bear in the neighborhood that people aren't securing their trash cans and it's knocking it over and making a mess and people aren't very happy. So I send them a little list of things that they can do to the send out to the neighbors. And then that's been helping. They haven't had as many issues. But the biggest thing they did there is they all love to watch birds. They all took down their bird feeders. So that way they aren't having the suets being knocked out and the bird seeds being knocked over. But it's really just educating people a lot of times because they don't know or they don't really think about those things or it's a mild inconvenience to them. But the bears is like, okay, well, this is a free meal. I can't pass it up kind of thing. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's better to address it right when it happens. So if the first time you have any incident sure. of a bear, you need to go get a bungee to bungee your trash can shut or do something to deter it because if it re repeatedly comes back and it's being rewarded, it's going to learn very quickly that it's an easy meal. That's also Yeah. Yeah, that only makes yeah. sense. I mean, why do we eat fast food half the time? It's quick, it's easy, it's there. <laughs> Not very hard to get. Yeah, yeah, that that only makes mm -hmm. sense. You know, I, I've heard a lot of really interesting, you know, especially from like northern Minnesota, you know, towns where bears are so used to people and the people are so welcoming and used to the bears that they just kind of like hand feed them. And, and uh, you know, there's there's places like different wildlife sanctuaries where bears just kind of come and, and they feed them all throughout the summer and stuff. Um, and so I'm kind of wondering, I mean, how do you, how do you feel about those situations? And, uh, you know, what would you tell people who are, you know, rather than it being a passive issue where, where they're coming up and eating trash and that sort of thing, um, people are actively out there uh, feeding them. You know, what, how do you feel about that? I don't like when places do that. Cause I don't, I've never thought you should feed wildlife. Like when I was little, I was like, Oh, that would be really cool. But then quickly realized that that's really not a good option. You're not, you're just teaching the animal to get used to people, which is technically what you're there for but you're also training the animal that if it sees a person that may not want it to walk up to it that could cause the animal to have to yeah. be put down because it went to the person when they didn't want it, it might attack them looking for food and it just leads to overall if especially if they're teaching if it's a mother and then they teach their kid their cubs and stuff oh let's go just walk up to people they're just going to give us a granola bar or whatever and then mm -hmm. you also don't know that some we don't really know entirely what is not good for bears like we know dogs can't have garlic they can't have chocolate but what if someone gives them a chocolate granola bar is that going to upset them is it going to possibly oh, too sure, much yeah. of it and just those kinds of things that you don't need to interfere with mother nature in that capacity you can observe from a distance and i feel like you should be able to get mm -hmm. just as much appreciation for nature 
as if you were, well, I don't think you should feed them, but if you were feeding them and it possibly was hurting them. One, one of the, one of the things I, I see pretty consistently as a, as a trend, especially with carnivores or predators of any kind, really, um, it's that humans look at them as enemies <laughs> frequently. And in part, it's, it's sort of a thing where, you know, they've largely been extirpated from different areas. Um, um, or even even things that aren't so much predators but have an impact on an ecosystem, like like beavers, for example, um, that when they start to come back, uh, there's there's a lot of issues with human conflict and tolerance of them. Um, and so so in your mind, I mean, in in bears, um, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's been an overall, I mean, a steady increase in population, like they're doing yep. better, um, you know in that light, if we're having more bears, that means more possible interactions with people. You know, what's, what's the best way to mitigate those interactions and make sure that there's long-term conservation for bears? Yeah, that's always a big question around here is because around here, we're having a lot of coyote increase too. And people are just not used sure. to having either of these two on the landscape. So they're just, they're yeah. saying that they're a nuisance because they're not prepared for a bear coming in in the summer. So they're keeping their trash cans out like they do over the winter or not taking down their bird feeders and those kinds of things. And I think if yeah. we want to create a sustainable future where these animals can live on the landscape as they naturally did before, before we came here, that we also have to be understanding too that they are, that we are in, like if you're living in a rural area, you're living in a forest. The animals also live in the forest. You can't just take over everything because you're a person. So you need to be accommodating yeah. to the animals that live there naturally and while it may be an inconvenience to you every now and then, you're also kind of being in, can be an inconvenience to them because normally a path that they would walk on, on a normal trail or just walking through the forest, now there's a yard and a house in the way and they have to make avoidance, which they should, it's kind of a give and take where you have to understand that you're in the middle of the woods and that a bear may come and knock your garbage can over if you don't secure it. But you could also take that extra step to just put a bungee on it and secure your garbage can or don't put it out till the morning, keep it in the garage. And then in the morning when the trash truck is coming, take it out that morning. Little things like that that you can do help in the long run to make a harmonious people not relying on bears or, or bears not being reliant on people for food sources. And then they're just gonna stay. Keeping bears wild is always a good thing to do. You know, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny because, you know, as humans, you know, we're, we're frequently like, oh, look at, you know, we're so smart and look at all the things that we can do. And then I feel like I see so much in issues where there's human wildlife conflict, where it's kind of like, oh, these animals are doing this. And, and there's not much thought to like, well, okay, you're the human, we're the humans. Let's come up with a solution yeah, really <laughs> and not just solution. like blame the animal. Yeah. And, and like beavers, especially, it's so funny because, you know, they returning to a lot of areas they'll build a dam and it floods part of a farm mm -hmm. and those farms were built originally in land that was beaver ponds because it was so fertile so then beavers are just kind of coming back to where they were and we're no longer used to dealing with them so it's like we've completely lost an idea of like okay well how do we respond mm -hmm. um it's it's kind of an interesting thing to to watch or even like the idea of like shark infested waters yeah i mean it's like <laughs> shark infested i mean that's where they live that's like a human infested yeah. neighborhood yeah um, i've always even when i was younger my parents because we always watch shark week and i and they, they shark infested yeah. waters and i was like six and i was like mom i thought the sharks lived there that's not that's <laughs> where they live so in, in your research then i mean what is your primary thing that you're focusing on 
I mean, these camera, these camera collars sound really interesting. Yeah. So I have kind of a two part trying to answer a couple question things. So, but the camera collars, we're doing a basic behavioral and then a little more in depth for gene oncology with the black bears. So we don't really know what black bears do every day. We have accelerometers on them, but you have to, for accelerometers to work, which if you don't know what that is, it's kind of like a Fitbit for an animal. They sure. get the output and if they have something to validate it with, which we can do through videos, we can see what they're doing all the time. So it kind of gives a layout to what different bears are doing, which we can classify them by age classes and um, sexes to see what variations there are. So that's what I'm hoping to gain with the behavioral ecology from the video data is kind of figuring out what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. What do they do when it rains? What do they do when it's pouring out versus when um, it's hunting season? Do they do have different behaviors? So that's the first part. And then between these behaviors for the eating, when are they eating, when are they foraging, and what kind of factors go into it, and then what are they physically foraging? So if they're walking by a whole bunch of different brush and stuff, which one do they pick out to sniff and which one do they pick out to eat? So trying to break down those classifications. Um, yeah. We also, uh, we're working with the Virginia Game Department as well, and they um, were adding a component on invasive species because this one bear that I was just working on, she loves this invasive raspberry, a wineberry, and she just sits in a bush mm -hmm. for hours and eats them over and over again and spreads it all <laughs> over the landscape. So we're trying to add that component in. And then the second part is the Black Bear Research Center here at Virginia Tech. For, I think it was five years, they had four or five years, they had black bears during hibernation season that were nuisance bears. So they were in certain areas um, that they were causing some kind of destruction and they were brought to the center and kept over the winter for, they were doing hormonal studies and then now behavioral studies with the data. Um, we're trying to figure out when they go into hibernation, how much they really move around correlated with temperature and things like that. And then what do males versus females do during hibernation? Because we had a whole bunch of different sexes. No, that's, that's really interesting. Bear, I don't know. Bears, bears just kind of fascinate me. I mean, they, there's just such a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like a, like a persistence about them, you know, and, and, polar bears and like then you, there's a whole thing with growler bears and that gets all really complicated and stuff but but they're you know they're just their their adaptability and stuff and the amount of range that they're able to cover i just think they're really fascinating yeah they can cover this well it depends on the bear too because this one bear that i was just working on she stayed around this little clearing for a long time and mm -hmm. it was just like circling and eating constantly and then this other male he was all over the place covering such a vast different area <laughs> It was just really interesting to see those differences between them, but just between the sexes and between sure. individuals. I just had to chime in really quick with this one because um, Brogan mentioned growler bears or growler bears a couple of uh, seconds ago here. And um, this is actually a really fascinating story. So it all kinds of starts with this Inuit hunter named David Katana. Basically, he kept coming across, and this is all basically in the same day, all these bear ransacked cabins, which, to be clear, isn't something that polar bears are particularly known for. This is up in, in northern Canada. So anyway, he, he finds these cabins one after another, you know, four, five, six. And at this next cabin, he runs into the bear itself, and it's one he's never seen before. It's blonde. Which you might be thinking, what's so weird about that? Pretty often when you see pictures or videos of polar bears, especially when they're uh, spending a little bit more time on land or they're a little dirty, they kind of look blonde. No, 
No, this one was like, like blonde, blonde. And it had dark legs, almost like it was wearing like knee-high Uggs or something. But despite that, this was no basic bear. Anyway, the hunter thought it was a grizzly. Chaos ensues, and he ends up shooting the bear. Then he takes it back to town where some government dudes check it out, and their best guess is maybe it's a hybrid? Some kind of cross between a grizzly and a polar bear? Which, if you know anything about anything like that, like you, you may have heard before, like, oh, well, species can't interbreed. That's part of what makes a species a species. Eh, not entirely. There's some, there's some leeway there. Have you ever heard of a liger? That's part lion, part tiger. Or a mule, which is a mix of a donkey and a horse. Or even a zonkey, a zebra, and a donkey. What tends to be the catch with each of these, though, is that while you might get that first cross, you have that one hybrid child, that ends up being sterile. It can't really breed with anything else. So back to this bear, it gets sent off, tested, confirmed that it is indeed a hybrid. But this is where it gets weird. See, it's second generation. That's not supposed to happen. Mom was a growler. Dad was a grizzly. See, grizzlies and polar bears broke off from each other around the same time that we did from Neanderthals, like hundreds of thousands of years ago. So this whole thing was pretty shocking. Long story, slightly less long, growler bear numbers have actually been rising over the years, or at least that's what it seemed. And the sort of general idea about this whole new species, you might call it, is that it was possibly linked to climate change pressures of having to adapt in a changing landscape, because now you have these two species overlapping. Warmer temperatures are moving across Canada and Alaska, and Canada's grizzlies are going north, while polar bears are moving south off of, off of the ice. And so maybe what could be happening here is they're intermingling, they're interbreeding, and there's actually some success from the hybrids in that maybe best of both worlds in terms of some of the traits. That's the story that we tell. It's the story that we like. It's not the story the genetics tell. That one's much different. A paper came out that was co-authored by Martha Brannigan. And basically, here's what it said. Every single one of these hybrids could be traced back to one female polar bear. It was one female who mated with two different grizzlies. Just two. Basically, she ended up having three litters with two different individual male grizzly bears. And then, as it turns out, this whole thing with the uh, second generation and even the third generation, well, that third generation was from the daughter growler mating with the exact same two grizzlies that her mom did. So that third generation was basically out of, I guess, incest? So these growing numbers and everything, all, all of this like shock and awe and uh, inspiration about um, the you know the new growler species uh, rising on the landscape, really ends up being tr like connected back to like one mother and one daughter who had a particularly odd fondness for the same two grizzlies. <laughs> now that's a lifetime movie. 
You know, I suppose I should ask. Uh, so when we were talking about hibernation, you were mentioning how, you know, the females, they kind of might wake up a little bit and then give birth and then they feed. So is that different at all for males? Do males have a shorter hibernation period or, or anything like that? Um, We're not. And I don't believe they have a shorter, it's mostly the weather dependency because if it gets really warm really quick, they'll probably wake up sooner. Um, but I am pretty sure that if they, it gets cold enough, they're just going to go into full hibernation and just sleep the whole time. But it, it also depends on if someone walks up on them, like that bear that we walked up on was a male. So he woke up because he heard us, but they may wake up and move around a little bit, reposition, but it's unlikely that they're going to get up and just leave or wake up for like a couple of days and give birth because it's males. But so I think that also plays in, but the females probably are going to move around a little bit more to either accommodate the cub or try and help it if it needs it. But they're usually pretty sleepy the whole time. Um, one thing I'm realizing that we didn't really touch on a whole lot, um, that is probably worth it <laughs> for, for a variety of reasons is, um, like impacts on their population. I mean, as I understand it, you know, people people love to talk about bear attacks, but bear attacks don't really happen all that much, um, and, and we don't tend to look at the reverse. I mean, how how are bears being impacted by humans? Um, well, one of the biggest things which we did touch on a little bit was the that humans that they eat too much human food, which then deteriorate. It's not good for them. I mean, like we eat fast food all the time and it's not good for us. We have other supplements that we can do. Bears don't always have that. So the encroaching human population spreading is a factor. And then, but actually in Virginia, bears are increasing in population, which we're trying to kind of, that's one of the projects that we're working on is trying to figure out why. We think it could be related to possibly deer, but we're not sure. Um, But definitely humans going about and a lot of times when they report to the game warden that there's a bear in the area, if they try to relocate it, it just creates more of a problem because there's already bear home ranges established and you throw a new bear in there. It's just gonna cause issues with the bears that are already there. So people not being able to accommodate nature when, when they live in nature is one of the biggest things I think that impacts their populations, causing them to be relocated or euthanized or um, a lot of times orphaned cubs, like Virginia has a big orphan cub program where they try to foster them out to other mothers. Um, so just different things like that, that people may not think it's a big issue. They call the game more and it takes care of them, but they, it can be a long-term effect on that individual bear, or if it's a, it t- if the mother's taken away from cub or something like that. So just different factors like that people don't always think about. And kind of a, like a closing message here. Um, what would you say uh, would be like your, your, takeaway message uh, for listeners about uh, black bears um i think black bears are amazing and we should all just not try to run them out of our neighborhoods i think it's really cool to watch nature from your backyard um i mean i grew up in a rural area so i can say that a little more where i see a black bear walk out of the woods and it's not that big of a deal but just taking into consideration proper precautions that humans can take, as you said before, like we're supposed to be the smarter ones, things that human can take to keep both humans and wildlife safe would be just a simple step that, that, that you can then take to educate other people on how to keep both humans safe and how to keep wildlife safe in general, not just bears. And it can help mitigate a lot of issues. It keeps the animal healthier in the wild. It's better to keep them wild, not to try to tame them or domesticate them. It's just in the long run, just be kind in nature. <laughs>
Thanks again to Brogan Holcomb, our guest for the day, for being on with us. It's been about a year since we uh, since we chatted on this call, and um, I just thank you for your for your patience and waiting for your episode to come out. It's been a crazy year, as it has been for everybody. And uh, thank you all for listening, and thank you, thank you too to our our member supporters, the people who who basically are the bulk of how we keep this nonprofit and this show going in the first place, the people over at patreon.com slash the wildlife. Stephanie Rothstein, Gina Spadafori, Karen Bingston, the people over at the Mad Scientist Podcast, Rosie Bailey, Charlie Rodriguez, Charlene Urban Brown, Kim Drolet, Karen Bergman, Vikram Baliga of Planthropology, Maria Hancox, Angela Seibert, Megan Gariani, Matt Capel, and Christina Boker. If you want to join that rank of amazing individual human beings, you can do that at patreon.com slash the wildlife. And wherever you're listening, consider taking a moment to just pause, leave a rating, leave a review, because not only does it help us feedback wise to figure out what should we do? What should we change? What should we talk about? But it also helps to boost our visibility and nothing grows support for an organization and our ability to do even more amazing work than visibility. So if you're not able to donate, if you're not able to become a member, that's the next best thing. Leave us a rating, drop a review, and uh, we'd, we'd be glad to share it on the show. Thanks for listening. Peace out, Rainbow Trout.